0: exceedingly sinful sin and existential crises it must be the backdrop for pomona valley church Welcome back to the Backdrop Podcast as we approach the halfway point in the book of Romans. Yay! In this episode, we are going to be looking at one of the central sections of the letter from chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 11, where Paul is continuing his discussion of the law, the Torah, and and how it fits into this new thing God seems to be doing through Jesus. According to N.T. Wright, this section is unpacking in particular what Paul said in a more condensed way Back in chapter five, verse 20, the law came in alongside so that the trespass might be filled out to its full extent, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This was a confusing idea when we came across it a couple episodes back, and we postponed our discussion of it until now, where Paul expands on his point a bit. What does Paul mean that the law was for the purpose of sin being filled out to its full extent? Wasn't the law about not sinning, about living in a way that aligns with Yahweh? Paul sees a mysterious plan being hatched by God behind the scenes, so to speak, almost like the plot of a spy novel. And this chapter in Romans is where he explains himself a little bit more. He does so by reminding the Romans again of the story they know from the Old Testament, from Exodus to Sinai to the prophets, retelling the story to show that God's plan hasn't changed even if some aspects of it hadn't been fully revealed until Jesus came on the scene. I thought I'd start by reading N.T. Wright's summary of this passage first before we dive into the specifics, kind of to give us a 30,000 foot view of the whole that, um, that we can then carry with us as we zoom in on the particulars. So he writes, we could summarize the narrative sequence as follows. Those who are enslaved in the Egypt of sin, an enslavement which the law only exacerbated, have been set free by the Red Sea event of baptism, since in baptism they are joined to the Messiah, whose death and resurrection are accounted as theirs. We saw the beginnings of this argument last episode, and then it continues here. Wright continues, though. They are now given as their guide, not indeed the law, which, although given by God, is unable to do more than condemn them for their sin, but the Spirit, So that the Mosaic covenant is replaced as Jeremiah and Ezekiel said it would be with the covenant written on the hearts of God's people by God's own spirit. So Paul is in this passage, in other words, outlining how God has accomplished that covenant renewal, that writing on the hearts to reference the Old Testament prophets. There is continuity in what God is up to, while at the same time, there is discontinuity. The spirit is replacing Torah. Or perhaps it's better to put it that the spirit is fulfilling Torah and empowering God's people to finally fulfill Torah themselves. So with that framing, let's dive into the first paragraph of chapter seven. This is seven verses one to six. Surely, you know, my dear family, I am after all talking to people who know the law, that the law rules a person as long as that person is alive. The law binds a married woman to her husband during his lifetime. But if he dies, she's free from the law as regards her husband. So then she will be called an adulteress if she goes with another man while her husband is alive. But if the husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress. If she goes with another man in the same way, my dear family, you too died to the law through the body of the Messiah so that you could belong to someone else, to the one who was raised from the dead. In fact, so that we could bear fruit for God. For when we are living a mortal human life, the passions of sins which were through the law were at work in our limbs and organs, causing us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been cut loose from the law. We have died to the thing in which we were held tightly. The aim is that we should now be enslaved in the new life of the spirit, not in the old life of the letter. Paul begins with an analogy to explain how the law functions. It operates while someone is living but then death changes things. Specifically, the law requires a person to stay married to their husband as long as that husband is alive. But if the husband dies, that death frees the person to marry a new husband. he Wright points out that Paul is not saying that the law is the first husband, but rather that the law is what binds a person to that first husband. So now, who is dying and being freed from marriage to what and why? The marriage metaphor is helpful to a point, but then like most metaphors, it becomes unhelpful if you stick with it for too long. And we can tie ourselves in knots trying to get this metaphor to work beyond its helpful point, trying to figure out, well, if Jesus is the one who died, then he's the first husband, but no, he's the second husband that we're now united with after we died. So we're the first husband or or the law has died, or, or is it the law that's binding it? So let's try again. Paul is using the marriage metaphor to introduce this concept that the law can bind someone to something in life, but that death would release a person to bind themselves to something else. Marriage being one example of this concept. But Paul has a different example in mind here that doesn't line up with marriage one-to-one. If you remember from chapter 6, last episode, Paul makes a lot of the contrast between being slaves to sin and being slaves to God and that paradoxically, being slaves to God brings freedom and life, whereas being slaves to sin produces death. You can see from the last couple of verses of what we just read that he's still very much thinking along these lines. Okay, so the first husband in this analogy is the way in which we were slaves to sin. As he says in verse 5 here, for when we were living a mortal human life, The passions of sins, which were through the law, were at work in our limbs and organs, causing us to bear fruit for death. Sin was the thing we were bound to. And in some mysterious way that he will be unpacking later, the law itself is what is binding us to sin. Sin is, if I might paraphrase Paul's metaphor a bit, the abusive first husband that marriage has tied us to. And according to the law, the only way out is death. But Jesus has given us a way out. As Paul says in the previous verse, you two died to the law through the body of the Messiah so that you could belong to someone else, to the one who was raised from the dead, in fact, so that we could bear fruit for God. Jesus' death, which chapter six spent a lot of time establishing that we participated in through baptism, it frees us to remarry, this time to Jesus, so that we might experience life instead of death that came from being bound to sin. As we've seen over and over, Paul is speaking of sin as a person in contrast to the person of Jesus, not so much as individual mistakes that we might make. We were bound to the person of sin, but death allows us to be bound to the person of Jesus instead, or as Paul puts it in verse six, bound to the spirit of God. This for Paul is what Deuteronomy and the prophets were talking about when they spoke of God bringing about a new covenant where God would write the law on people's hearts or would give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. But now this causes a further problem. The law, the Torah that was given by God through Moses, how can it be bad? If the law stirs up the passions of sin, isn't the law on the side of sin? How is it that we have to be freed from the law that God gave? This is where Paul turns next, starting in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Certainly not. But I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin grabbed its opportunity through the commandment and produced all kinds of covetousness within me. Apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment which pointed to life turned out in my case to bring death. For sin grabbed its opportunity through the commandment. It deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is upright, holy, and good. The problem, Paul says, is not the law, but that the law gave sin the opportunity it needed to pounce. Paul's logic seems a bit convoluted here, so let's see if we can make the best sense out of it possible. Somehow sin grabs its opportunity through the commandments of the law. The commandments, of course, is primarily a reference to the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai, and Paul refers specifically to the tenth of those commandments, do not covet. But Paul also seems to have a longer view, back to the story of Adam and Eve, where God's commandment also gave the opportunity for sin to produce covetousness, in that case, of the fruit of the garden. Wright points out that Paul likely would have seen what happened after the giving of the law on Sinai as being a repeat of the story of the garden. In both cases, God gave commandments, and then immediately the people turned away. In Eden, by listening to the serpent and eating the fruit. At Sinai, by building the golden calf. It seems to me that what Paul is doing here is similar to what he says back in chapter five, that sin is not calculated or reckoned, apart from the law, that there is a distinction between doing things that are contrary to the character of a God you don't know, which is what the pagans who didn't have the law would be doing, and doing things that are contrary to the character of the God that you do know, which is what Adam and Eve and then the people of Israel did. Both are sin, but the one is far more serious than the other. This is actually a common theme in the Bible and one we might do well to think through about how to apply it in our current situation. The Bible has no expectation whatsoever that pagans should act according to the law. Of course, those who don't follow Yahweh, and then in the New Testament, those who don't follow Jesus, of course they don't act in ways that the Bible says God's people should act. Why on earth would we expect them to? The goal in the Bible is not to force the pagans to live like Jews or force the Romans to live like Christians. The goal is to introduce the pagans and Romans to Yahweh, to Jesus, and then allow God to transform them. It is usually only those inside the people of God who are held accountable for how they act in the Bible. The church has spent a lot of resources over the past 50 years, or really the past 1500 years or so, trying to create laws that force morality on people. And I wonder if we would have been in a much better place as a church and a society if we had spent those resources on other things while we ourselves lived in ways that aligned with God. But back to Paul. I think what he is saying is that when we have a commandment that we can break, it gives sin a much more serious opportunity to seize upon, bringing death to a people who are supposed to be characterized by life. In that situation, we haven't blindly stumbled our way off the path to life. We have intentionally chosen to wander away. And only when we know the path, the law that was intended to lead to life, can that sort of death result. Sin deceived me, Paul says, like the serpent in the garden, and it killed me. The law was given for good. It is holy. But sin used it as a base of operations, so to speak, from which to do its own deceiving and killing. And so this brings up a further complication. Wait, didn't God know that was going to happen? So why give the law, even if it was in itself good, when so much evil was going to result from it? And this is where Paul turns next, starting in verse 13. Was it that good thing then that brought death to me? Certainly not. On the contrary, it was sin, in order that it might appear as sin, working through the good thing And producing death in me. This was in order that sin might become very sinful indeed through the commandment. We know, you see, that the law is spiritual. I, however, am made of flesh, sold as a slave under sin's authority. I don't understand what I do. I don't do what I want, you see, but I do what I hate. So if I do what I don't want to do, I am agreeing that the law is good. But now it is no longer I that do it. It is sin living within me. I know, you see, that no good thing lives in me, that is, in my human flesh. For I can will the good, but I can't perform it. For I don't do the good thing I want to do, but I end up doing the evil thing I don't want to do. So if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I doing it. It's sin living inside me. This, then, is what I find about the law. When I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in God's law, you see. According to my inmost self, but I see another law in my limbs and organs, fighting a battle against the law of my mind and taking me as a prisoner in the law of sin, which is in my limbs and organs. What a miserable person I am. Who is going to rescue me from the body of this death? Thank God through Jesus, our King and Lord. So then left to my own self, I am enslaved to God's law with my mind, but to sin's law with my human flesh. This is where things start to get very interesting. Paul begins by reaffirming what he's already said, that it is sin that has brought the death and evil, not the law. The law is good, but sin worked through that good thing and produced death. But then he gives a very strange explanation for why. He says, first, this was in order that it might appear as sin. And then this was in order that sin might become very sinful indeed. God, it seems, has some purpose at work here. This repeats what chapter 5, verse 20 said, which we started this episode quoting. The law came in alongside so that the trespass or sin might be filled out to its full extent. Let me quote N.T. Wright on what this is all getting at. God's way of dealing with sin, it appears, is not to hold it at arm's length. It is not a matter of damage limitation, attempting to restrict the operation of sin. Torah apparently, was not, after all, given in order that Israel might become a sin-free zone. Rather, God's way with sin takes account of the fact that sin has infected the entire human race, Israel included, and that no law could possibly be given that would deal with that problem. No, sin needed dealing with, in a more radical way, at the place where it had become resident, that is, at the heart of the very human race itself. And it was Torah's peculiar task to draw sin to its full height, to let it appear in all of its true colors, to be shown as exceedingly sinful. Sin must be seen to be sin. Now, let me rephrase that in a slightly different way. God knew that Israel would disobey Torah and gave Torah anyway, but not so as to condemn Israel for being lawbreakers. God wanted sin to be concentrated to its full extent so that it could be dealt with fully. What God does in Jesus is not a half measure, but the final dealing with sin. And in order for it to be so, sin needs to be fully sin, not half sin or a little bit sin. And that can only happen when sin is deceiving God's people into walking away from their God. Because sin is at its worst when it is deceiving the people of God, the people who should embody the life and justice God wants for the world because they know who God is, but who instead live just like everybody else, becoming themselves part of the problem rather than the solution. That is when sin is at its most sinful, so to speak, when someone who knows better walks away. And so the law is good, but puts weak humans in a position where they know who they ought to be, but choose to follow sin instead, despite it all. And this then is the key to understanding what Paul is doing in verse 15 and onward. This has often been misread as poor, tormented Paul who wants to be good, but keeps doing bad in some sort of existential crisis. But the I in these verses is not Paul. We know this because it would be entirely inconsistent with what Paul has been saying all along here for him to self-identify like this. I, however, am made of flesh, sold as a slave under sin's authority. Paul has been spending the past several chapters establishing that those who are in Christ are not slaves to sin any longer. They are not under sin. Sin's authority. Paul's whole point is that Jesus' followers have been freed from exactly this existential torment, so this has to be him playing a character for rhetorical effect. This cannot be Paul himself speaking autobiographically. And the most likely character for him to be playing is the people of Israel, the ones who were given Torah, who delighted in Torah, but who were unable to fulfill Torah. Israel was meant to be God's holy people but they acted like anything but, which is, of course, exactly what Paul was just saying in the verses just prior. They have been given this good law that they delighted in, that they want to follow, but sin has deceived them and now lives in them, causing them to break this good law that they want to follow. It is no longer I doing it, Paul writes, it is sin living inside me. Again, Paul has clearly said that for himself and other Christians, sin does not live inside them any longer. So it cannot be himself or other Christians that he is talking about here. What he has just been saying is that sin deceived and lived inside the people of Israel, however, and that this was so that sin could be exceedingly sinful. Being God's people is a good thing. Having the law is a good thing, but sin has used this good thing, thinking that by bringing down even God's people, it would win. But God saw all of this ahead of time and laid a trap for sin and death themselves. Who is going to rescue me from the body of this death? Thank God through Jesus, our King and Lord. And then Paul goes on in chapter eight. So therefore, there is no condemnation for those in the Messiah, Jesus. Why not? Because the law of the spirit the one who gives life in the Messiah, Jesus, released you from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, being weak because of human flesh, was incapable of doing. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. And right there in the flesh, he condemned sin. This was in order that the right and proper verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us as we live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As we said, sin was not only enslaving humanity in general. It had used the law to deceive and enslave even Israel, God's people. It had, as Paul has just made clear, dwelt within even Israel itself, bringing death to a people who were supposed to reflect God's life. It has become, as Paul said earlier, exceedingly sinful. And God knew this was going to happen. And instead of trying to hold sin off, God allowed it, to infest even the beloved people of Israel. Why? So that it could be dealt with. For God has done what the law, being weak because of human flesh, was incapable of doing. The law was meant to be good and life-giving. But since humans are weak, Paul is saying, Israel failed to keep the life-giving law and found itself in an even deeper hole, because they had now been deceived by sin. But God was not surprised by any of this. Sin didn't pull a fast one on God. Ha ha, God, I tricked you. This is the white witch and the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe, thinking she has outsmarted Aslan, but Aslan knowing the deeper magic that the white witch does not know. God's plan is something sin couldn't imagine. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came as a representative of humanity, as a representative of Israel, right at the center of this sin storm where sin has drawn itself up to its full height. Sin is living in humanity, is living inside Israel itself, and Jesus comes into the middle of all that. N.T. Wright puts it like this, the law caused sin to be heaped up in one place, to flourish and abound in that single location. As many have seen, the place implied in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 was Israel. As not so many have seen, God's purpose in and through all of this, in giving Torah with this strange intention, was that sin might be drawn together, heaped up, not just in Israel in general, but upon Israel's true representative, the Messiah, in order that it might there be dealt with, be condemned once and for all. So Jesus has sin in all its fullness heaped up upon himself, and right there in the flesh, he condemned sin. Not, as Wright emphasizes, God condemned Jesus. God condemned sin, which is, after all, the whole point. Sin is all heaped up in one spot, and then God, I don't know, drops a bomb on it, locks the doors and burns the whole place down, whatever metaphor you want. This then solves the problem that Paul has been building up all along, freeing humanity from the power of sin so that it can now, as Paul says in verse 4, live according to the Spirit. To bring things back around to where we started today, people had been subject to sin, with sin living inside them. But Jesus has broken sin's power, and now God's Spirit lives within us instead. And this contrast is what Paul ends this part of the letter With So starting in verse five of chapter eight, look at it like this. People whose lives are determined by human flesh, focus their minds on matters to do with the flesh. But people whose lives are determined by the spirit, focus their minds on matters to do with the spirit. Focus on flesh and you'll die, but focus on the spirit and you'll have life and peace. The mind focused on the flesh you see is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. In fact, it can't. Those who are determined by the flesh can't please God. But you are not people of flesh. You are people of spirit, if indeed God's spirit lives within you. Note that anyone who doesn't have the spirit of the Messiah doesn't belong to him. But if the Messiah is in you, the body is indeed dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of covenant faithfulness. So then, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you, the one who raised the Messiah from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies too through his spirit who lives within you. Here again, Paul turns from the theology of things to the practical application of that theology. Since we have been freed from the power of sin and now have the spirit living in us, we should live like it. This goes back to something we've said often that living in such a way that focuses on, as Paul puts it here, flesh leads to death. Because it is living in the wrong era. The era of the Spirit is here, so we should live as if that were true. It's important to note that when Paul says flesh, he isn't meaning it in a physical is bad sort of way, while spiritual is good. Flesh is Paul's description of the whole human person that has been serving sin, whereas his alternative is not something unphysical, but rather the whole human person serving God through the Spirit. Some have made far too much of Paul contrasting flesh with spirit in ways that are fundamentally platonic. That is, that are ideas that came from the Greek philosophical school that followed Plato, not from the Bible. This final passage for today is very similar to where we ended things last episode. Paul is encouraging people to live in a way that reflects reality, that they belong to Jesus, not sin, to the spirit, not the flesh. And that when we live that way, we will find life and peace. One thing to note is how Paul emphasizes where the mind is focused in this passage. And this is a good indication that Paul's meaning is not try really hard to be good. Try harder. It is rather find practices that help you focus your mind on what's true. Instead of allowing your mind to be focused where the world tells us to focus. Because when we are consistently reminding ourselves and each other, because this is not an individual sport we're playing, when we're reminding each other what's true, who we belong to, whom we serve, what God is like, it makes it far easier to live in a way that aligns with that reality. Deep breath. This is definitely one of the more confusing parts of this letter, but we made it. (laughs) I hope all of that was at least a little bit clear. If you have questions, of course, you can always email in pomonavalleychurch at gmail.com, and I will do my best to respond to those. Next time, we're going to be finishing up the second main section of the letter, looking at the rest of chapter eight. So finish reading that chapter for next time, and I will see you then. Bye.